Hello, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening around the world. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Alexander, and you're listening to a brand new episode of Ivy Exec Insights, a weekly podcast brought to you by Ivy Exec, an elite network of global thought leaders. You can visit us at ivyexec.com and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. In today's episode, you will have a chance to hear The Story Factor, six stories that promote collaboration at work with our special guest, Annette Simmons, public speaker, trainer, and author of The Story Factor. Annette Simmons is the author of the five books, including The Story Factor, named by CEO Reed as one of the 100 best business books of all times. Uh, Her most recent book is Drinking from a Different Well, How Women's Stories Change What Power Means in Action. In this episode, uh, we will discuss uh, six stories that improve collaboration, uh, four buckets full of stories, how to develop your story, as well as six principles of story practice. Enjoy the show. So uh, it's noon here. I don't know where you are or what time it is, but I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina, and um, uh, coming from my office. And so the the Story Factor is a book that I wrote in 1999. It was published in 2000. I've actually been teaching storytelling since 1998. Um, and of course, you know now it's a buzzword. Everybody's talking about storytelling and business storytelling. And and what's happened is that a lot of the development of the storytelling training has has moved in a different direction than what I learned, because I learned storytelling uh, at the National Storytelling Festival. Uh, that's that was set up for traditional tellers, folk tales, because I think of storytelling in a different way. Uh, I think of storytelling as a vehicle for evolution to teach us how to behave. Um, a lot of the the th- stuff that's out there, it has templates. It's you know, there's a beginning, middle, and end of a story, which is like that doesn't help me. I mean, you know, yeah, it's accurate, but it's not useful. Um, there's, there's templates like, uh, about, um, but no, it's and, but therefore, which came from South Park, uh, uh, writers who created this comedy show. And so a lot of the stuff comes from entertainment. Um, and most, uh, well-known is the idea of the hero story. You go into the unknown, create, uh, you know, encounter challenges and then come back to the to the known world having learned something. These are all great templates, but it's not what I learned. And what I learned is that that storytelling is is the process by which evolution teaches us how to behave, who to trust, who not to trust, and uh, mental rehearsals for situations that will get in, uh, so that we can think of good solutions because we heard the stories of somebody who's experienced. Um, it was the original virtual reality to train people how to be a human. So that's how I look at it. And um, so you come to storytelling, a lot of people come to storytelling thinking that you know, you're going to make storytelling your tool. Um, and that's one way to look at it. I think that storytelling is really a uh, process that we enter. Um, and so I look at, there's an old story about King Midas. So King Midas wished that everything he touched would turn to gold. And I think a lot of people who are looking at storytelling is I want to tell a story to convince everyone that I'm right. 
Uh, and that's of limited value in the real world. King Midas got his wish that everything he, he touched would turn to gold. And then when his little daughter ran up and he went to pick her up, he turned her into a cold, dead statue of gold. What he did was he ultimately isolated himself from any kind of warmth, compassion, or feedback. And so when I invite you to look at storytelling the way that I do, I want to invite you to realize that we don't want to uh, find a story that controls other people's narratives, because ultimately they will go back to their world and they will gravitate back to what their narrative was. Storytelling in the way I use it is how we share each of us the part of the narrative that we bring to the table so that we all end up with not just one of the maybe five or six narratives that walked in, but we create something that's that's new, that's a, that's a product of the six narratives. So that comes from the story of the blind men uh, talking about an elephant. And if you haven't heard it, it's from Sufi literature. And uh, so one guy's like uh, an elephant is wide and flat and leathery. And so he could be from the tech. You know, he just said, what we need is more is, is uh, new software. And then you have somebody who's like, I'm on the ground here. Uh, an elephant is round and stout like a column. It touches the ground. And so that might be somebody out in the field saying, you know, what we need to do is treat our people better because people don't feel trusted. And so what happens when we come in with all of our different narratives, we each have a different definition of the problem we seek to solve. And only by sharing our narratives, sharing our stories, can we teach others what our part of the elephant looks like so that it's less of a conflict and more of a creative uh, endeavor to create a bigger story so that we're all on the same page rather than just forcing everybody to be on a smaller page. When I introduce myself uh, working with, with groups I sometimes share, uh, this is another Sufi story about Nasruddin. He's a wise old fool or a foolish old wise man. You know, those come in the same package a lot. And um, he occurs and occur, reoccurs in these teaching stories. And Nasruddin was invited to speak to a village for three weeks in a row. And so on the morning of the first day that he was to go to speak, he walked into the room, he turned around and he said, my beloved people, who amongst you knows that of which I speak? And the people said, we are poor, simple people. We do not know that of which you speak. And Nasruddin threw his robe over his shoulder. He said, well, then there's no need of me here. And he walks out. Doesn't walk back in again. So they go about their business. Now, Nasruddin, the foolish part, he went shopping for camels in the marketplace, gossiped, did everything but prepare his words to reach the hearts and minds of the people he was to speak to. And then the, the, the second uh, week when he was to speak, he again said, my beloved people, who amongst you knows that of which I speak? And the people had a plan. They'd been talking themselves. So they stood up and they said, we do. We know that of which you speak. And Nasruddin threw his robe over his shoulder. And he said, well, then there's no need of me here. And he walks out. Well, they don't know what to do with this guy, but they come up with a plan for the third and final week. 
he walks in just like usual. My beloved people, who amongst you knows that of which I speak? And half of the people said, we are poor, simple people. We do not know that of which you speak. And the other half stood up and they said, we do. We know that of which you speak. And Nasruddin throws his robe over his shoulder and he says, well, if those of you who know will tell those who don't, then there's no need of me here. And he walks out. So I, I share that story as, as kind of, you know, what I do for a living. I help people see that you're already good storytellers. If you're breathing, you are a storyteller. Every time you pick up the phone and you go, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe what happened today. You're telling a story. And these stories that we tell create the context of our lives. And so I'm asking you to pay attention to the stories that you tell and whether they're creating a collaborative context or a competitive context. Because when we are in competition, you end up with people fighting over the narratives instead of learning from each other and creating a much bigger narrative. We look at storytelling as, as uh, the training that we need for getting along together with others. And when you were a kid, you're, uh, uh, you got to see children's books that were to entertain you, but they were also to teach you social lessons and about behavioral norms. So one of my favorites was The Cat in the Hat uh, by Dr. Seuss. I don't know if you remember that, but um, the lesson there is to go ahead. If you're going to have fun, you're going to make a mess, but don't make a mess that you can't clean up. And if you think about that lesson, don't make a mess that you can't clean up. Some of our global leaders could could use that lesson right now. Um, and we're because we've looked at storytelling simply as trying to control someone's narratives, we've lost a lot of the ways that story brings us together and helps us collaborate. So I was wondering whether you guys had any um, uh, children's books that that you learned really important lessons from. And uh, I'd like you to share uh, uh, the name of the book and the lesson you learned. And uh, in a little while, we'll go back through that just to demonstrate that that these stories, even the children's book story, I have used children's book stories in presentations. Um, and that is a great way to remind people kind of why we're here and who we are. Which brings us to the six stories that I think you need to know how to tell. Uh, in my my work started when I worked with uh, silos, uh, how to overcome territorial games. If you've ever had somebody withhold information from you or perhaps say that they were going to do something and not do it, those, those are examples. Um, and so I asked people to tell me stories about a time when they saw a turf war uh, or, uh, um, you know, a, a battle. And so those are metaphors. And the stories they told me illustrated exactly the behaviors that people do when they feel defensive um, or they're trying to control somebody else. We don't like to be controlled. One of the principles of storytelling is that we are looking at participation as opposed to control. And there's an inverse relationship. 
when we want to be uh, influential, we have to realize that people have questions about who we are and what our intentions are. And so the first story that I suggest that you learn how to tell is the who I am story. The second is the why I'm here story. So in a way, the King Midas story that I told is a little bit of a who I am story. Um, The Nasruddin story is kind of a why I'm here story so that we can start to collaborate uh, because I cannot go in, you know, appear before you and say, my name is Annette Simmons and I'm trustworthy because you kind of like to make that decision for yourself, don't you? And so does everyone else. So if you're making a presentation, we we forget to, we go straight into our, our, our data or our argument and we forget that they have one question they want to be answered first. People don't want more information, really, seriously. We have enough information right now. What they want, desperately want from you, is they want faith. They want faith that you're a good person. They want faith that you are here for the right reasons. And it's only when they've decided that you are trustworthy that they will listen to you. When I teach uh, presentation classes, sometimes people are really nervous about the presentation that they're going to make. And they tend to focus on like analyzing the audience as the first place to start. I think uh, that can actually get us into trouble. Uh, There was uh, a movie called Pretty Woman. I don't know if you remember it, but um, uh, Richard Gere and, um, oh, I can't remember her name, but anyway, she played uh, a, a prostitute and Richard Gere uh, asked her at one point, what's your name? And she says, I don't know. What do you want it to be? And sometimes when we analyze the audience so much that we give them who they think, who we think they want, we're actually being insincere and inauthentic. And so I think it's important for you to, to understand ahead of time and give someone the privilege of a little taste of who you are and why you're here. So um, the other stories are, and this is based on collaboration, the other stories are a vision story, um, kind of where we're going. And so I'd like to share one of the vision stories that I use when I'm teaching storytelling. A lot of people want to you know, make a great presentation and um, they're so worried about the audience. The other thing that you can do is, is so you, you end up focusing so much on the audience that you're not sharing enough of yourself. Well, um, when I tell a who I am story, it's sharing a little bit about where I come from and why I'm here. And so when I teach presentations, one of the stories I use to reframe, because that's one of the things that story does, it can reframe your, your task. People are so worried about making a presentation that'll be, you know, suitable to the audience and interesting. They forget that that they want to know a little bit about you. And so we write the bones down. I've actually, hang on, I'm going to go back to write. So um, when we share the who I am and why I'm here story, we give them the opportunity to decide whether they trust us or not. Now, there's, there's the vision story uh, that I use for the presentations 
is, is the idea that, you know, instead of thinking, oh my gosh, my audience is not going to be interested. I'm afraid I'm going to be boring. That's a story you're telling yourself about who you are and why you're here. And it actually doesn't serve anybody. It doesn't serve you and it doesn't serve them. So I've been training people to think of storytelling um, and making presentations as uh, kind of similar to training a puppy. You know, you don't get mad at the puppy for being a puppy, for not being interested. What you do is you make sure that you have treats to give the puppy so that the puppy comes to you and is interested because you're choosing something that's a little bit of a treat. And every time you tell a story, that's a treat. Um, it's a treat in terms of, of your humanity connecting with other people's humanity. So when we think of uh, finding a story, I don't want you to th think so much about what does the audience want me to be. I want you to think about who I am and what I bring to this group. The way to do this is, um, and I've been teaching this since 1998. So, so I have a process, uh, and and you know we could have bullet points on a PowerPoint slide, but I want you to remember at the end of this webinar without ever having to refer back to um, anything written. So I'm gonna give you a little trick for remembering the six stories. And it's it's using uh, your physical body because we're engaging more of our memory when we do that. So it's the who I am, it's the why I'm here, it's the vision story, it's the value in action story. And I'll talk about that because values mean different things to different people. Integrity could mean keeping your mouth shut or it could mean speaking up. So people want to know what that value means in action to you. And the best way to illustrate that is a story. Teaching stories, which is you just want to give people an opportunity to not make mistakes in real life by sharing you know, some of the things that they need to know ahead of time. And then the I know what you're thinking stories. So the I know what you're thinking stories are times when you're about to make a presentation and you already know what their objections are. And you could wait until the end and they'll ask you the questions that then, you know, the bear trap questions. Well, don't you think that? But if you tell an I know what you're thinking story ahead of time, what happens is that you can validate their point of view. So in a way, the King Midas story that I told at the beginning is to validate that, oh, yeah, it makes sense that you want to find a story that will convince people you're right. And uh, it's not actually what you really want. Uh, so I validate that point of view. And then I walk around to let's consider what is, you know, the best way to increase collaboration. The I know what you're thinking story can come early in your presentation or you can you can sit in there when when you get to the places where you you have a feeling they're going to have a negative reaction. And what that does is that you tell their story on their behalf and validate it and show another uh, point of view. But how do we find these stories? Where did we where do these stories come from? So I have four, uh, uh, I think of four buckets that where you can find a story. And uh, so we'll just kind of practice. Um, I want you to, to play along with this. I want you to think of the qualities that you bring. Let's just imagine it's your next presentation. 
Um, think about who you're going to talk to. What are the qualities that you bring that make give you the right to ask for their attention? Um, sometimes it's just that you're funny and that's enough because people are dying for some sort of relief from the mess that we're in. Um, sometimes it's, it's that, uh, that you are willing to go deep instead of keeping it all superficial. Sometimes it may be that you're willing to have some fun with it and not go deep. I don't know because every single one of us have our own qualities. So just think about what quality you have uh, that you bring to the situation. And because this isn't as interactive as, as we'd like, if you, if you can't think of anything, um, well, first of all, if you can't think of any qualities you bring, perhaps you need to write down humility first. Um, but I would recommend that you, you just practice with the idea of integrity. So what's a story I can tell about who I am and why I'm here? that would illustrate what I think of as integrity. And then people then decide whether that matches their story of integrity or not. So there are four buckets. One is a time you shined. So it was a time when you were tested and it would have been easier to, be, to not be that quality. It really cost you something to be that quality, but you did it anyway and you were glad you did. So that's a time you shined or a time you blew it which people love to hear the, uh, you know, uh, stories about uh, about messing up and, and making mistakes. <clears throat> what you end up doing is earning, um, uh, you earn extra points because you are willing to be vulnerable. And in the trust dance, somebody has to go first. And so a lot of times I'll tell a I blew it story because I'm trying to build rapport. The uh, third one is a mentor. And so I would tell a mentor who taught me about integrity, for instance, and I'm going to share a story in a, in a minute. Um, and you get double points when you share a story about a mentor because the mentor, you are demonstrating that you, uh, you're demonstrating gratitude. You're demonstrating that, that you're teachable. Um, and so when you tell a story about a mentor that taught you about a quality that you, you aspire to or that you've, you've embedded in your, your life, then people get a sense not only that you value that quality, but that you also understand what it's like to learn from others. And then finally, uh, you can have somebody else pay for your special effects uh, and uh, you can lift from a book or a movie a short little story that will illustrate the quality that that you feel like um, is a essence of who you are and why you're here. So I'll just share four stories from those four buckets to give you an example. Uh, a time you shined. Well, I uh, after I wrote the book about territorial games, I wrote a book called A Safe Place for Dangerous Truth. And uh, I, I learned how to facilitate dialogue specifically in impasse situations. And I'm talking about conservative and liberal Christians, talking about homosexuality. I've worked with the Pentagon where, you know, a, a, a budget meeting is a battle. So I've, I've had lots of experience in, in, in doing these things. And so I was going to teach other facilitators how to facilitate dialogue. Well, there were, I, I had a class and there was 10 openings because this is intense work. And when you're going to facilitate dialogue, one of the things you have to do is get your ego in check. 
Um, and I didn't want it to be too many people because, you know, there's there's uh, a place to hide. Um, and with 10 people, it just seemed like the perfect uh, number. And we got a chance to experiment on ourselves and, and learn how we feel when other people are facilitating us and make some changes into how we do it for others. Well, uh, the phone rang. And um, this was a January course, and I already had five people signed up that were independent, you know, uh, some people who are paying their own way. They're part of the gig economy. And then I had this big corporate client call, and they said, so we want uh, uh, to put people in, in this course. How many spaces do you have? And I said, well, I have five. And she said, well, we'll take all five. I didn't feel like that was the right thing to do because... Have you ever been in a course where 50% of the people are from one organization? It tends to end up to be about that organization. Um, and so I said, you know, I think we could take two in this course and maybe three in the next course or vice versa, but I don't want to make 50% of the, of the participants all from one company. And she said, are you turning down our registrations? And I said, well, I'm, you know, proposing that it would be more fair to all the participants and probably a better learning experience if we split it up. She goes, well, then forget it. So that was a time where I feel like I was tested. Um, I believe in fairness and diversity. And so it would have been easier to just say, sure, it would have been financially better as well. But I just didn't feel like it was the right thing to do. Um, and so that's a story about a time I shined. So then you get to make a judgment about whether um, I have the same values that you have um, and whether you want to listen to me further based on what I've shared about who I am and what my value is around integrity. So that's shined. Blew it. Oh gosh, I have lots of stories about a time when I blew it. Um, one of one of the best ones was uh, so I'd written this book called Territorial Games, and uh, it was early days, and it was it was kind of like uh, my my telephone answering machine says we can't come to the phone right now. If you'll leave a message, we'll be glad to get back to you. And it's like we. Me and my dog. I mean, I was just by myself. And so I was trying to appear to be bigger than I was. I got hired by this uh, financial services software company. And they were going to merge uh, a company from the West Coast and a company from the East Coast. Um, and so they wanted me to come in and they wanted me to do this process that I designed with Territory of Games and a Safe Place for Dangerous Truth. So uh, I had designed it to represent about 250 people in an organization. And then we would have 25 people come after we gathered all the stories. And then those 25 people would sort through the different points of view and come up with something uh, that's more cohesive than these, these separate different kind of pieces of the elephant. Um, and they would read the verbatim uh, interviews of the 250 summarized in a nutshell. So he says, can you do it with 75 people? And I went, sure, not a problem. I had no idea what I was going to do. So cut to the day, cut to the day. We're, so I've got these verbatim uh, uh, reports 
And I had come up with this brilliant idea that what we would, we would use different color highlighters for different issues. And we would have big, you know, flip chart paper. We, we could write things down. It was an unholy mess. There were 75 people in that room. You can't have a conversation with 75 people. I know that now. And I was deer in the headlights. It was one of the, the one of the groups had had stolen all the highlighters and they were making little towers of, of the highlighters and sword fights. It was out of control. So Mark, the one who hired me, he starts walking towards me and he has two bottles of water in his hand. And uh, as he's coming towards me, I'm just thinking, oh no, 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 I'm, I'm so screwed up. Um, and it was still early. I still, you know, there's anyway. So, so he comes towards me and instead of getting right in my face, which is what I had, you know, seen before when I screwed up, somebody say that you, you can't do this. I'm going to take it away from you and I'll handle it. That's not what he did. He turns and faces the same way I'm facing and he kind of rocks back and forth on his heels and he goes, uh, You've never done this before, have you? I went, no. And he hands me a bottle of water. And he says, well, I thought you could use some water. And that's it. I had never before experienced getting support from someone when I was making a mistake. I had only experienced somebody taking it away from me. And so he taught me a whole new way about how to treat someone who's maybe bitten off more than they can chew. Um, and he gave me support. And let me tell you, I figured it out. I, I, I know group process. I figured it out. We made it work. It was a great day at the end of the day. But I learned something. I learned a, a couple of things. So in terms of I blew it, I learned that I will never again overpromise and underdeliver. That was a lesson for me. And when you tell a story about a time you blew it, people can tell in your tone of voice uh, that that you made a decision um, and that that you're 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 not wanting to do that again. And so they can trust uh, that instead of just the aspirational, you know, kind of what I'm great at, when you tell a story about what you screwed up, people can build more trust because you're being vulnerable. The third um, uh, bucket is the mentor. So Mark was a mentor to me in that story. Mark showed me how to treat someone who had made a mistake. And from then on, I changed the way that I interacted with people instead of viewing it as something that I, I, I need to fix myself, elbow them out of the way and go fix myself. I no longer do that. And it's just been a wonderful journey of understanding how a mistake is an opportunity to learn um, and an opportunity to collaborate. Finally, the fourth bucket, you can look in for a story about who you are and why you're here, um, is a book or a movie that illustrates the point you're trying to make. So let's just say that you're trying to make a, a, a point about integrity. Um, you can't say I have integrity, but you could, you could 
pull a scene from a book or a movie and retell it in a way that illustrates what it is you mean by integrity. So one time I was facilitating a group and um, we were making a bunch of lawyer jokes because there's a lot of low hanging fruit there. And uh, we thought we were terribly funny. And um, so we were talking about how lawyers don't get uh, this or that, or you know how lawyers are. And one of the guys, when it came time for him to share his story, he came up and he says, I read the book To Kill a Markingbird, the summer of my 12th year. And that was when I decided I wanted to become a lawyer like Atticus. I wanted to become more than a lawyer. I wanted to become a father like Atticus Finch in that book. So let me just point out, that was a three minutes, what three sentence story. One of three minute stories, a three sentence story. And he changed the context of, you know, being a lawyer is about being honorable and making sure that all the stories are told. And once he told that story, we shifted the way that we interacted. We pretty much stopped telling lawyer jokes, you can be sure. But that's an example of taking a scene from a book or a movie that you can share that illustrates the qualities that you're looking for um, and the, the qualities that you're offering to give uh, as a re result of, of their permission to be influenced by you. Now, the, the, those are the four buckets, but, but storytelling is not just finding the story. It's, it's learning how to tell the story. And that's why this is a collaborative process. And, and so if we were participating, we would do this. Um, uh, uh, I would have you do breakouts and we would share your stories because the first time you, you tell a story, it's a baby story. And so you're just testing the story and you just need to hear what it sounds like coming out your mouth. And you can't do it in front of a mirror. Because storytelling is something you co-create, not just in your imagination, but in the imagination of your listeners. And you can tell by someone's attention whether they're co-creating this in their own imagination or not. Um, one of the stories that I tell that illustrates this, uh, it being an oral process, is uh, about my, my dog, Larry, who's a greyhound rescued from the track, never did understand that when he went on one side of a telephone pole and I walked on the other, we weren't going anywhere. And so I use this story when I'm in a room full of egos, you know, how everybody thinks that everybody just needs to listen to me and uh, uh, then everything would be fine. I know that their egos are attached but I don't talk about their egos. I talk about my dog, Larry, and about how he went on one side of a telephone pole and I walked on the other. And we were both trying to go in the same direction, but we weren't going anywhere until one of us backed off because we were connected. And so I had to think about, well, you know, he's the dog, he should back off first. But the truth is until I back off first, I have to role model it for him. He backs off, and then we can go on one or the other side of the telephone pole. So that's an example of how I use the story to get people to um, a little a little level of self-awareness. Now, the reason I told the story is because I want to talk about one of the principles of storytelling. 
Storytelling is a function of oral language and imagery. And if you're creating images in your uh, listeners' minds, then that's the goal of storytelling, that they actually see, hear, smell, taste, and touch this story in their own minds. And so the next part is to come up with the bones of the story and then add visceral details. You are going to ignite your own imagination first so that what I'd ask you to do is the story idea you came up with is write down something to stimulate uh, you know, what the scene looked like, how cold it was, um, uh, Maybe it was it was so hot that sweat was dripping down your back. These visceral sensory pieces of information are what pull people into a story so that they're having a vicarious experience of our story in their own minds. So if you, in that Larry story, um, visualized my greyhound going on one side of the telephone pole and me on the other, I'm, ask, I'm, I'm asking you to think about what color was the dog? A lot of people say gray because of greyhound, uh, but actually most of them aren't gray. And Larry was black with a little white tuxedo spot. And so it doesn't matter necessarily that you give them all the details, but you have to give them enough details for them to imagine in their mind um, the telephone pole and the dog and the leash you know, and you can see the leash being taut and then backing up and it going loose again. It's these sensory pieces of information that create the virtual reality that you're trying to create when you share a story. Um, the next thing you do is you test the story and you need to test the story with a friendly listener. So ideally somebody else could watch this webinar with you and then you go back decide to come up with three-minute stories. I think three minutes is probably, you know, the limit that we can tell a story in business situations. Um, if you're a master storyteller, you could tell an hour-long story, but but uh, people probably won't sit still for that. So what I do is I ask you to think about telling any story you tell in the, the space of three minutes. So if you write the bones down, I want you to data dump all of the memories from that story of see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. Don't worry about whether you're gonna use it. I want you to upload it into your imagination because the more vivid it is in your imagination, the more you can hear the dialogue of what he said and she said and um, what the broom looked like, you know, like the uh, people stealing all the highlighters and making little towers. I mean, you've got to have some sort of visual uh, sensory information in order for someone to get engaged in your story. And then you test tell it. And testing is, you have to have a friendly listener, someone who is just willing to listen with delight. I was trained uh, by Doug Lippman, who is a storytelling coach for all the professional storytellers and folklorists out there. And he taught me that if you listen well enough, that you can awaken the creative intelligence in the person who is speaking. So that's another form of how you can use storytelling is you ask someone else to tell you a story. And if you listen well enough, they're going to hear themselves. You know how sometimes you're like, could you, you want to hear yourself, yourself talk. Well, that usually doesn't go over well. But if you listen well enough, they may begin to hear themselves talk. And I have listened to people when they tell their stories 
that were able to transition their story just because of the quality of the, the listening. But we're coming up with a three minute story. So your job is to listen with delight um, and to not say, oh, you grew up in Detroit? My parents are from Detroit. That's not listening, right? You're just absorbing their story. And then the, the third part is uh, to give them appreciations. It's a baby story. It is too soon to prune. I understand that in business, we're used to getting feedback and critiques, and that's how you get better at stuff. Well, that's how you get better at stuff that's predictable. But storytelling is not predictable. It's, it's, it's uh, a function of who you are. It's co-created in the moment. You can't necessarily know ahead of time whether it's going to work or not. So you have to test it. And when you test it, I ask you, to train your listener to tell you three things after you tell your story. Ask them to tell you what they love about your story. Ask them to tell you the, the details that ignited their sensory imagination. And then ask them where they might use that story in a work application. Because after all, we are doing business storytelling here, so we need to make sure that it applies. One of the things that I found in teaching storytelling is that people think that they need an appropriate story or they need a story that you know isn't too personal. But in today's world, what we're lacking is the personal connections. And so integrating your presentations with stories that share a little bit about who you are, see, let's do it, who you are, why you're here, your vision, your value in action, teaching stories, and then I know what, your thinking stories. That is going to build the uh, context for which the information you want to share gets presented. Mm -hmm.